podcast. I'm here with Julian Co, the co-founder of Ribbon Finance, a DOV protocol. Julian, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, we, we, we were supposed to do this like a year ago, but I think I've just been prolonging it. So finally happy to be uh, on the show. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really stoked to have you on. I mean, we've talked on Telegram, but this is the first time seeing each other virtually. So that's great. So Julian, yeah. I was thinking maybe we could just start off about sort of your background. You went to university at Cornell. Um, what did you study there? Did you study computer science or, or finance or econ? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I, I went to Cornell. I think back then uh, I, I was sort of majoring in computer science. I, I was definitely just more on like the engineering uh, engineering sort of path. So um, I, I sort of got into crypto a little bit before college, and it was like a bit lucky that uh, I chose Cornell as my school because once I, once I sort of started my freshman year there, I sort of stumbled upon like a very big crypto group there which now, I mean, some of them are like the the founders of like Avalanche, like Tezos, uh, Balaji, who, whoever knows now, he, he was also there. Uh, a bunch of like the MEV research all sort of came from Cornell. So yeah, I think it's very lucky that I, I just got into crypto. Uh, I was just going to sort of study engineering, computer science, but I, I met all, all these like crypto people there as well. That's cool. So were you guys part of like a finance club or something like that or a crypto club while you were in school? Yeah, I was part of like a Cornell like blockchain club. But I think, I mean, back then in like 2018, 2017, there wasn't really much like DeFi per se. So I, I wouldn't say finance and crypto had a big overlap. I think maybe there were some people who were interested in, I don't know, like trading crypto uh, but, but less so of like the academic, the, the finance academia of, of that, that you see now in DeFi. Um, so yeah, I think back then it's mostly like computer science folks, uh, more interested in stuff like consensus algorithms and uh, more, more basic uh, protocol level stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you're in the blockchain club. So do you know for sure, like once I graduate, I'm going straight into of, of the crypto space is that kind of was that the goal or were you kind of just you just kind of fall into it when you're applying to a lot of places yeah so um when, when i did my high school we had like an eight year uh eight, eight month gap before i went to college so that's sort of where I, I got into crypto so this was like uh late 2015 early 2016 uh first learning about crypto and after i did my freshman year sort of crypto went crazy in 2017, as everyone knows. So I, I definitely felt a bit of FOMO. Um, so I, I did take a year off to, to like intern at a few different places uh, to really like work in, in the industry. And then I, I came back for another year and then I, I felt FOMO again, so I left again. So I, I officially only spent like two years in university. But uh, yeah, I think it was pretty clear that I, I, I wanted to do crypto full time. I, I just needed to figure out which direction or where I would start. Uh, but yeah, that, that's sort of my, I, I'm sort of like a career crypto person at this point. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So you almost went like the Bill Gates route where he's like, just leave college early and go straight to work. Is that right? Uh, I would say that's right, but I, I wouldn't want to compare myself <laughs> yeah. to Bill Gates. I, I, I'm nowhere as, as successful as him. Sure, sure. <laughs> so one of the places you were at was uh, Numerai. Is that right? Yeah, so that was like my first crypto gig ever. Um, back then, I mean, they were doing quite interesting stuff in uh, quant finance, and also they had some interesting crypto-related stuff. So 
it, for some context, how their business works is they run a hedge fund and it is like a purely quant hedge fund. And they also have this crypto system where data scientists can submit models of what they think the market is going to do. And uh, they can sort of stake a cryptocurrency against their model as like some form of skin in the game to signal, I, I, I have high conviction in my model. I think it's going to do well. Uh, you should like use my model. So Numeri, the company, sort of aggregates all these models and, and uses this staking signal to figure out, okay, which ones are legit, which ones are trash. Um, but yeah, while, while I was there, I think I was definitely much more on the crypto side of things less so on like the actual quant finance stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I did all sorts of random crypto stuff there. I think it was my first like real crypto engineering job. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. One more quick question on Numerai, because I just want to understand this right. So let's say I'm a quant, I figured out some strategy, I, I signal with a big token stake that this is a good strategy. Yep. So if the Numerai hedge fund uses my strategy to trade it, is there like a revenue split or something? Is that how it works? Yeah, so that's some, they have like a fixed payout every week or every month. I, it's been a while since since I've been following the project, but uh, they used to have like a fixed payout every week or every cycle, and uh, they'll sort of divvy that up using live data on how your model has performed over the last month. So, for example, if, if the company uh, decides to pay out $100,000 over a month, um, over that one month of live data, uh, they'll sort of figure out which models perform the best and divvy up that part between those people. So that's how it works. And they also have this, like, uh, they also used to have, uh, the, the interesting thing about this staking system is, like, it filters out a lot of the civil attacks. So, mm. for example, you can think about it as, like, the, for, the easiest way to gain that system is for me to submit a million models, like one of them will hit and, and I'll get paid out, right? So mm -hmm. uh, having this like economic stake to um, to sort of signal some sort of conviction is very important. Otherwise, you just end up with a bunch of spam and you won't be able to use which models. Uh, so yeah, that, that's sort of how it used to work. I'm sure a lot of stuff has changed now, but um, it, it was a very interesting idea. Well, that's, that's pretty interesting. So then after Numerai, uh, where do you find yourself next in between? Uh, co-founding Ribbon and leaving Numerai? Yeah, so I, I was just like an intern at Numerai and I, I think after those six months, we were in like the absolute bottom of the crypto bear market. Mm. ETH was at like 80 bucks. I was just figuring out what I wanted to do in the crypto space, um, but I wasn't really sure. So I actually went back to school for like a year. Um, I, I thought, okay, maybe I should just like learn a bunch of stuff and figure out what, what I wanted to do after. So um after that year, I was sort of looking at, at the crypto space again and thinking what, what, where to work, what to build. Um, and one of the interesting opportunities that came up was, uh, I think the most interesting thing in the crypto space back then was proof of stake networks. Mm. So the only proof of stake network that was live at that point was Tezos. And there were like 10 more really hot proof of stake chains that were like slated to launch over the next year. So Everyone was trying to build all these like interesting, you know, like income products based on like staking yields. There were like some conversation about liquid staking, all, all sorts of stuff. So I think that was like the cutting edge of crypto in 2019. Um, so I met a bunch of people at Coinbase who were sort of starting to work on staking stuff within the company. Uh, and 
basically they decided to hire me to work on staking stuff. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, my main project while I was there for the first like six months was to work on like Cosmos staking. So uh, running the validators, like writing some, writing like the code to figure out uh, how we can do like the, how we can get our retail customers to stake like really easily, how we can do all this like inventory management where, um, I mean, Cosmos staking has like an unbonding window. Mm -hmm. So we need to manage like the inventory of staked and unstaked assets. So yeah, I think I, I spent the better part of six to 12 months working on that system. Um, and I haven't checked in a while, but I think when we launched it, Coinbase was probably like top 10 biggest stakers on, on Cosmos. Uh, so yeah, I think that was probably like my, my flagship project at, at Coinbase. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I see a lot of similarities between sort of the DOV, sort of the yield co component <laughs> to the staking yield component. Now, um, did you go from Coinbase directly to co-founding uh, Ribbon? And if so, why build on Ethereum as opposed to Cosmos or Tezos or another chain? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I was working on like staking stuff for a while and then I, I worked on a bunch of other stuff. And this was sort of like at the same time that DeFi Summer happened. I was obviously participating in a lot of this stuff. I, I was trying to do like a bunch of these like MAV strategies, but when MAV wasn't even the term yet. So my, my, my roommate and I, who's like my co-founder now, we used to run like liquidators on DYDX and all these other cool. like DeFi protocols. Um, but yeah, I think the competition in the MEV space was getting like really insane. Um, we were basically not making any more money. And we were figuring out, okay, what should we build uh, in the DeFi space? And I think one of the ideas that we thought was very compelling is like, well, at that point, all of the DeFi protocols or yield products in DeFi were sort of fueled by this crazy token incentive scheme. Like mm -hmm. all of it really felt like a Ponzi, especially the ones which had like crazy names. Um, and we were sort of figuring out, okay, how do we build like a good yield product that isn't just like lending, that also doesn't require like shitcoin printing, basically. Um, and we were looking around the space. I think we also looked at a bunch of these like Chinese exchanges, like Binance, even like Matrixport, a bunch of these smaller brokers. They, they were sort of creating these like what they call like dual currency products, which are really just like call selling products. Mm. Uh, but they, they sort of phrased them as, okay, this is like a, a yield product that, that, if you're willing to sell ETH at this level, you can get paid for it now. Uh, we thought that concept was very interesting. So I think we, we started like playing around in the options space and figuring out, okay, how do we take that, bring it to DeFi? Uh, those, those kinds of products were generally like only being used by large miners and so on. So, so we thought, okay, if what I, if I need like a million dollars to, to, to use that product, like I'm never going to be able to use it. What if I wanted to, do this at a smaller scale. Uh, so yeah, we, we were sort of thinking along those lines and I think we came up with this idea of like, what if we created a vault product that's very similar to like Yearn or any of these other like DeFi vault products, but instead of doing some sort of yield farm, we actually just like sell calls. Um, so I think that was a cool idea and we just played around with a bunch of parameters to figure out, okay, how long are people willing to collateralize these options for? Well, what are like our the DeFi users' uh, time horizon for these types of trades. Uh, and we came up with this structure that 
sort of we stuck with today and everyone else seems to converge on as well. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And, and kind of going back here, you made a really interesting point. Like there, we had this kind of yield farming craze where people would become LPs and, and they're basically being rewarded into protocol tokens. But that's not like it's not like a very sustainable model. And, and vol selling is a way to generate yield in a way that it's never going to go away. There's always going to be vol and you can always sell derivatives. And it's a very common strategy. So that's pretty cool. And you guys were able to kind of take that concept and put it on chain so people could trade it or do that with a smaller size and in a sort of a self-custodied way. We don't have to go to like a C5 exchange. That, that's really interesting. And then one quick thing. So you guys actually did do uh, a token airdrop. And I remember you guys gave it to people who traded DeFi options. I was a, I was a Hedrick trader at the time. So I was <laughs> eligible for the, the ribbon airdrop. So I was very happy about that. How did you guys come up with sort of that airdrop concept and and what's the idea behind uh, the the token and the tokenomics? And then also, how did you guys decide to like give it to what protocols like Hedrick or another protocol, so on and so forth? Yeah, so I think uh, basically zooming out a bit, like we came up with this what what we call now like a DOV model. Um, basically, it's just like a perpetual call selling or post selling strategy, and we felt like the early users who will really understand this stuff are people who understand what options are. And the people who understand what options are, who are also in the DeFi or crypto space, that's not a big overlap. Mm -hmm. So those people have probably traded on some of these like options protocols. So we thought the best way to get their attention, the best way to get them using our product is to just give them free, co free tokens. Uh, so yeah, I think we just narrowed down the list of anyone who has really traded in one of these platforms um, let's give them some ribbon tokens and get them to start using our product. So I think that was like a very good growth hack. Uh, we probably got a bunch of users from, from those uh, acquisition methods. Um, but really, I think it, it, it was like the community of people, like, like our Discord from day one was very like options focused. So I think uh, just catering to more options people may make the community strong versus some of these like, I mean, if you've seen some of these later projects, it's just people who come in and just like, when airdrop, when when token, when TGs, <laughs> it's really just spam. So yeah, I think we were we were quite unique of a project, and we had a strong options community, which is why uh, people just felt compelled to be in the community. Yeah, and actually, that that token right at the airdrop had a really strong demand for it. I remember the market cap was something like $4 billion or, or something <laughs> like that. I mean, were you surprised? Were you like, oh my God, this is amazing? Or what was what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, it was crazy. I think uh, maybe lucky or unlucky mm -hmm. in that sense, because I think we, it, it, in hindsight, it, it's, like a, it's a great start if we get start off at like $4 billion of market cap or fully dilated market cap, but also like, we obviously know this is not real mm -hmm. and we obviously know like people, there are going to be buyers at this price and those people are going to lose a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So I think I was like cautiously, I was very cautious that at those times and uh, it, it, it just didn't really make sense. Uh, but I mean, some of these things you, you can't really time the market. Uh, if a bull run coincides with your token launch, like that's sort of what's going to happen by default. So I think the token price has come down a lot. The market cap has come down a lot with the whole crypto market, but it feels like a much more comfortable base now that we can grow into versus starting off at like $5 billion, yeah, that which makes is sense. like absolutely insane. 
That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you guys are constantly innovating and pioneering sort of this DOV space. So, you know, you started with the covered call. When did you guys go into the cash secured put? And then um, I know some other DOV competitors are, are starting to explore like alternative strategies, like maybe like a, a basis trade type of DOV. Have you guys thought about kind of expanding beyond the cash secured put and, and the uh, covered call? Yeah, so uh, the covered call was like our bread and butter for a while. I think the, the main reason for that is uh, if you are like a big ETH holder on chain, uh, there are not many places to park your ETH to earn high yield. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you look at lending markets, the, the rates for borrowing ETH is extremely low. It's like sub 20 bits usually. Now it might be a bit higher because of the merge like airdrop stuff, mm -hmm. but Historically, it's like 10 bits or 20 bits. Um, same for Bitcoin. So no, no one really wants to borrow Ether Bitcoin on chain. Everyone wants to borrow dollars. So naturally, I think that prices like ETH yield, the, the natural ETH yield on chain at, at, at a pretty low point. So I think for those users, um, if they're willing to take some risk, if they're willing to sell some potential upside against their asset, they can get something in a range of 50 bits a, a week versus like 10 bits a year sticking in a compound. So I think some users who are maybe more active, more interested in timing the market, uh, they, 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 those are like the main power users of Ribbon for sure. So I think that was like the, the core idea behind the product and the, the core reason why people use Ribbon. And I think maybe like three months later, people started becoming like crazy bullish on ETH. They were like, okay, I'm a little bit worried to sell calls. Like, can I just sell puts instead? Because I think ETH is going to double in the next like six months. Um, so, so we thought, okay, this is like quite a nice uh, complement to what we currently have. Um, we we launched like these cash secure puts on ETH, and like that really became like our biggest vault in, in, in like six months. I think wow. in Q3 or Q4 of last year, uh, sort of ETH was just going up, so people were taking on more and more risk and be, uh, they were very, they had very high conviction in selling puts. So I would say for anyone who wanted to sell puts in size on chain, like this was really the only place to do it. Uh, you couldn't like do it yourself on like open or any of these other protocols. It just didn't have the liquidity that was necessary. So at, at the peak, I think our put selling vault had like $150 million mm -hmm. uh, of USDC. So as you can imagine, that like that vault itself sold a fuck ton of like short data ETH puts into the market, mm -hmm. uh, which was like pretty crazy to see. But I mean, I think once there are these like massive drawdowns, people are like much more averse to just like blindly following a, a call, a covered call or, or put selling strategy. And I think currently people are more active in how they manage their assets on the platform. They they think more carefully about okay, when do I want to pause and resume the strategy. When do I actually want to do these ball strategies? Uh, yeah, that's much more the case uh, today. And I think your second question was about like, are we going to explore new types of strategies? I think um, our philosophy is like, we don't really want to go down what what I call like the vault treadmill. Mm. So there are all these all these like projects who create like twenty different vaults or like fifty different vaults, which we have which have like so many different types of strategies, so many different types of assets. I think realistically, even though like that creates more choice for users, I think it it just sort of takes away the product experience. Like 
at that point, what are you actually known for? You're just known for building a bunch of random DeFi strategies, mm. uh, a bunch of random vaults. So I think we were very explicitly like, let's not churn out 20 different vaults. Let's just focus on like the core majors that we are good at. Uh, let's not try and overcomplicate things and stick to sort of our bread and butter, which is call selling and put selling on the majors. So yeah, I think that's been our philosophy and that's sort of why we're sticking to these types of strategies only. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And you actually made a point I hadn't thought about before. So like, if if the the lending rate for on-chain ETH is like, you know, 30 basis points per year, while the yield on the covered call is like super interesting, but then you could do the cash and carry trade on say a dare bit, and I've seen it really high, but let's say it's like eight or 9% or whatever, while sticking my USDC or whatever stable coin into the put selling vault, might be less interesting because I can already get like a pretty good yield just from the delta neutral cash and carry. I hadn't thought about that. I got to think about that some more, but but that's a really interesting point. I'm wondering, can you take us through sort of um, the process of sort of a DOV auction from Ribbon's perspective? And then maybe touch on, you know, we've had a lot of craziness with Luna meltdown and all that stuff. Does that, did that affect your guys' auctions? Yeah, so um, maybe just like zooming out a little bit about like how do the internals of a DOV work, I think is, is quite an interesting process that maybe many people don't really care about, but uh, hopefully your audience like, really cares about this kind of stuff. So um, historically, maybe let, let me talk about like V1, which is how we did it initially. It was like super primitive. We, we would have these like, it was very manual. Honestly, it wasn't very decentralized. We would have basically users stick their ETH into our vault and we sell, let's say, 10,000 calls a week. And we would, like, on the back end of that, we would find buyers who would hit up every desk on Telegram and ask them, hey, can you give us a price for, like, 10,000 ETH calls? And whoever gives us the best price, we take it and we do the swap on chain. So, for example, uh, QCP or Genesis or one of these guys, they, they give us the best price. We tell them, okay, you guys won this round. They, we, we whitelist them for that round and they're allowed to like OTC swap against the vault using AirSwap. So that was how it was done in V1. I would say initially um, our pricing wasn't very good because I think we didn't have a large set of people competing in these uh, pseudo auctions. Mm -hmm. So if you had like three people competing in these things and they all knew that they were competing in these things, like they would all show a bad price. So we, we didn't really understand that at that point, and there were not many folks who understood what like these DOVs were, so that we didn't really have a choice. But I think very quickly in Q3 and Q4, like somehow every big trading firm started understanding this stuff. Everyone wanted to get in on buying these like large calls and puts in size. So uh, bringing on more competition on the auction process has like magically solved the the, the pricing issue. Uh, I think. Sort of, if you if you try to reason it, reason about it, uh, simply like, no matter what auction process you use, like whether it's like a simple one or like a really complicated Dutch auction or something, if you have too too few participants, you always get like a shit price. Mm -hmm. So having like a large set of participants is really like the, the number one issue, and then you can sort of optimize again for the game theory. So yeah, our main goal in the second half of last year is like. Let's bring on as many trading firms as possible to participate in these auctions. Um, and a key part of the design was um, 
for us, the uh, you know V two one key innovation that we did there was anyone could participate in these options on chain. So we thought like in our existing model, we only know like five trading firms, only those five guys are competing. But if we open it up to the world, there might be random like a random anon call buyer. He he can like bite off ten percent of the size and, and sort of if you aggregate all this demand from random people across the world. You can actually get a better price. So yeah, our V two system was sort of like focused around this this concept of open options. So we use this on chain auction mechanism called Gnosis Auctions, which is um, basically Gnosis Auctions aggregates bids from all participants in, uh, who, who want to participate in this auction, and it settles at the lowest possible price where the supply meets the demand. So uh, basically. There's no, uh, there's no front running. You can't like submit a bid for one bit higher than someone else at the last second. It sort of mitigates all these MEV issues because everyone settles at the same price. Um, and yeah, so it, it was quite a, actually, it was quite a good system for the last eight months. I think it worked pretty well. Um, but obviously, I think one of the drawbacks of that system is, as I mentioned, it settles at the minimum point mm-hmm. and like the lowest price where price uh, where supply meets demand. So even though we managed to um, get like a large group of auction participants, I think we got 30, 40 people bidding on the ETH calls these days. Uh, it, it would always settle at like a suboptimal price. Mm. So, so that was when we started thinking about, okay, we have a large group of participants. Let's like try and, and optimize the actual auction mechanism we, we think that's like the bottleneck now for execution. So we, we spoke to Anand from Paradigm. We spoke to a bunch of people about uh, this, these kinds of auctions. And we sort of figured out that instead of settling at the min price where, where supply means demand, these things should these things should, should settle more like a, like a, like an order book mm. where, where it's through like the best price and then, and then it sort of steps down over time. Um, so that was like the, the idea that we had, but I think it was a very difficult to implement this kind of thing on chain. Uh, there, were, there were a bunch of like complications around like reinventing a new auction mechanism. And I think we, we spoke to Anand and he basically on, on Paradigm itself, they, they do auctions 24-7. So, so they know this stuff very well. So he advised us with like a, a bunch of sort of auction design that he thinks works very well in his system. And we sort of collaborated and we, we came up with this like DeFi paradigm system where we could use paradigm instead for, for how the, the price discovery happens, but it still settles on chain, which is sort of like a V2.5 V2. of our auction mechanism. And it's like our current state today. So as of a few weeks ago, we fully uh, migrated all our vaults to trade on paradigm versus doing this auction. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So. Does that mean that anyone who is a trader on Paradigm can go ahead and participate in a ribbon auction? And is there like a minimum size to participate? Because I know you were mentioning in V2, anyone with any size could sort of participate and be part uh, of the bidding sort of order book. Is that still the case for Paradigm? Yeah, so um, we initially experimented with a bunch of different auction design as well. And I think, uh, interestingly, we think that um, if you have sort of any size bids from anyone in the world, you actually get a worse price because 
large players like Genesis, like QCP, um, if if sort of there are 10 different people who win the auctions, for example, um, if all of them win like sort of one-tenth of the size, uh, it's possible that they all get into a race to dump it on the market first. Mm. So it's actually like negative. Uh, it's like pretty bad for everyone. Like, uh, or some of these bigger players, they may not want to show a good price because if I know I'm only going to get one-tenth of the size and all these guys are going to just dump it on me, I'm not going to show a good size. So I think counterintuitively, some big players are actually willing to pay more if they can get a larger size. Um, so that was like the insight that we figured out. And uh, basically, the solution to that was, let's make these auctions like all or nothing. Um, but I think at this point, uh, some of these auctions are like too big. So all or nothing means like only two players can participate, mm. which was bad. So we decided... What if we could break down, let's say we have 10,000 BDC calls to sell. What if we could break it down to four different chunks and make each of these four, four different chunks like an all or nothing option? So um, we, 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 that's like the current model that we are at. And we think it actually works very well where, um, yeah, it solves a lot of the interesting game theory decisions around who gets to win, how many times we can rerun these options. Um, and yeah, I think that's our current state. Uh, but I mean, I think if we see evidence of like things getting gamed or, or, or someone like trying to uh, take advantage of this system, we can easily change it again. So yeah, I think another big advantage of us moving to Paradigm was uh, we can basically change up the auction mechanism like super easily, right? We don't need to rewrite a new solidity contract with a new auction mechanism. Like Paradigm by default has a bunch of systems already. So yeah, we thought that was like by far the key advantage of using that system. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. There's so much like kind of game theory stuff that goes into this that I've never really thought about. So with the Paradigm system, does it basically like, uh, like the price is, is figured out on their platform, but then it's just like settled on chain? Is that right. kind of, that's the process? Okay, cool. And one of the things that we often notice in like options markets is like when the markets get volatile, the market gets really thin and then the bid yep. and the ask become super, super wide. Now, yep. do you see that same, same sort of process with like the recent market volatility in the sense that like, are, are there less participants in DOVs now just because the market's volatile and therefore the market's sort of thinner, so to speak? Yeah, I think during like the... 3AC, Luna stuff, uh, over that one month period, we definitely did see fewer bids across the board. Uh, that That's really just a function of some market makers or trading firms. They just don't want to buy any vault. They, they just don't want to trade at all. Mm. So they're not going to show you a bid because they, they don't want to hedge. I think they feel like it's a wiser decision to just sit it out. Um, but I think that has sort of corrected itself a bit. Uh, the current situation, it feels very much like normal, back to normal. Uh, the auctions get a lot of demand. I, I think people, all, all the trading firms have sort of turned their systems back on, like everyone's sort of back, back in business. Um, but yeah, I think it was just like really crazy to see that, you know, on the week that Luna collapsed or like the week before Luna collapsed, like we, we were finding it difficult for people to buy puts where like that was like the most profitable trade like you could have made that year right there, there were like so few bids on it it's it, it sort of like was a bit crazy um but i think it's really just a function of 
market makers just want to sit it out when they see high volatility sometimes. So, uh, and these guys are not like directional traders. Like they, they don't want to gamble on ETH going down. So mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. Cool. And now one of the things that people are pretty excited about is that Ribbon is going to uh, start, or maybe you guys already did start the uh, doing stuff on Solana. So are you guys planning to go on to more chains besides uh, Ethereum, L2s, and Solana? Or, um, you know, what are you guys thinking there? Yeah, so uh, in January of this year, in Q1 of this year, I think we decided, okay, the, the L1 trade is really hot. Every L1 protocol was trading at crazy valuation. And um, there was just like a ton of demand for generating yield on the majors, which are mm-hmm. like not even BDC ETH, but like Sol, ABEX, Luna, BNB, uh, basically all, all the major layer one tokens. So we thought, okay, let's like take advantage of this and let's try and very quickly deploy like DOVs to the major ecosystems and create like a covered call product for those majors. Um, so we started with AVAX, which like got crazy traction, like organically, I think in like less than a month, we got like 30 mil of AVAX there. Uh, like the whole AVAX team was like retweeting this stuff. Like it was nice. really going crazy. And we, we only did like one tweet about it. Um, so we thought, okay, this really works. And we, we, we decided, okay, let's do Solana next. But obviously as, as you know, Solana is not EVM. It'll take a long time to sort of spin it up from scratch. So we partnered with Zeta, which you guys have had on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. They, they have this flex product, which is really like, a, it's just like a generic options protocol on Solana. And they helped us write the code to take that flex and put it into a vault structure, which was very similar to how our DOVs worked. And we, we sort of slap on our branding, our front end, our, our, our users. So that was like a very interesting like joint venture, I would say. Um, it also went pretty well. I think we got a few few million dollars of soul uh, very quickly. Um, but I think since then, uh, obviously, this like layer one trade has come down a lot. Uh, soul has come down from like two hundred fifty bucks, to, like thirty dollars. Uh, similar for Avax, mm-hmm. and there's just a lot less interest on these alternate layer ones um, in their DeFi ecosystems overall. So we have seen like quite a big decline in sort of assets in, in, in these different uh, chains. But I think for now, like our, the stuff that we are doing on ETH feels like it's still very strong. It still feels like our core user base is still here and they're still using like our ETH and Bitcoin covered calls and input setting strategies. So we pivoted a little bit away from like deploying on 10 new chains and we just focused on ETH, AVAX, Lana. Those are like our three major ones right now. And, uh, we are probably not going to go down like the, the crazy, like let's deploy on every single chain anymore, unless it sort of makes sense again. Um, but yeah, I would say 90% of our TVL now comes from ETH. So from the ETH products. So I think uh, that that has really been, been like the ecosystem that has found like the most product market fit for us. And uh, that that's like the ecosystem we're investing in the most. Cool. And, and so like, what's the what's the future of ribbon like maybe you know if everything went perfectly as as you hope as of today like where where do you see ribbon going kind of big picture yeah so i think um one sort of 
uh, rabbit hole that we are exploring now is how do we sort of evolve from like DOVs to a more general purpose or like more types of structured products. So I think if you look at some of these larger folks like Amber who, who sell these types of products, they, they, they don't just have like covered calls and input selling, right? Mm-hmm. They, they have all sorts of different things for different types of clients. For example, they have maybe yield products like lending yield or they have like principal protective products that combines like lending plus options in some way. Uh, so, so yeah, they have like a whole suite of different things and we are sort of now in the process of figuring out, okay, how do we break all those things on chain? Like how do we go from just DOVs to lending as well to, to different types of like a uh, combination of options plus lending. Um, and we, we just launched uh, Ribbon Earn, which is like our first venture into this space uh, like a week ago. And basically how this works is um, instead of just selling puts, which in a mar- if the market turns, you can lose like a good chunk of money. Uh, what if we could just take, uh, what if you could just like lend your assets and take that interest and like buy options with, with like your interest. And we we think that's like a very interesting proposition because if you just like lend out your, your assets, you get like a fixed payout. Like maybe let's say you get like a fixed 5% a year by lending your assets. It doesn't change no matter how the market moves. But I mean, if you are like leaning bullish, uh, but, but you don't want to like gamble on upside, uh, what if you could like take your interest and like buy calls with it, and if, if you're if you you st- sort of still are able to express your market view, but uh, you don't have the same uh, risk of losing your principal uh, on trading the wrong thing. So we think there's like a large design space there. Um, I'm sure you have seen all these like brokers selling all sorts of stuff like shark fins and all, all sorts mm-hmm. of like more principal protected products. So we are exploring that rabbit hole now, and uh, yeah, I think we'll be shipping more of these things in the next few months. Um, so that's one category of stuff that we're building, which is basically more structured product stuff. And we're also doing a bunch of stuff on the option, on like the pure option side as well, which uh, is still like an alpha leak. So I'll, I'll leave that as like a teaser. And I think we'll be, we'll be announcing more in like a month or two. Right. So th- those are like the two buckets of things that we are exploring right now. Yeah, that, that's really exciting. And so let's say some of our listeners are new to Ribbon. What's a good way to follow you guys? Do you guys have a Twitter? Do you guys have a, I mean, obviously you have a website and an app. Like where, what, where do they find your website and all that stuff? Yeah, so I think the best way to, to find us is uh, on Twitter, uh, which is just twitter.com slash ribbonfinance or go to ribbon.finance, which is our website. Um, I think you, you should be able to find all the information you have there. Um, and we also have like links to our Discord and other stuff if you have more questions. So those, those are the easiest places to find us on the internet. Cool. And then just a couple of quick fun questions here uh, here at the end. So, uh, you know, obviously you co-founded this company, you're running it. You know, what do you do for fun outside of work? Do you find time to do anything else? <laughs> uh, I, I realistically, I, I work too much. So... Not really, uh, but I, I have been picking up tennis. So that, that's been like a fun IRL hobby. Oh, nice. That's awesome. And then lastly, if someone's new to crypto or new to trading or new to options, you know, do you have any books that you recommend or any resources that you thought were really useful that, that you would pass on to, to newer people? Yeah, I think um, 
maybe I'll give like more crypto specific advice. I think um, if you're sort of new to crypto at this point, there's really like so many, many interesting things that's happening in the world of crypto. So I think you can start exploring the, uh, sort of like the pure derivatives projects. So people building like uh, derivative primitives. And also you can look at people who are like building on top of them, like Ribbon. And also there are some of these more like interesting new, uh, new, new takes on what like an option is. So if you have seen some of this like uni V3 as options type stuff, that's also very interesting. So I would say, yeah, if you're trying to look at um, like what is the cutting edge that in, in DeFi right now, I would say those are like the three interesting things that are happening. Uh, primitives, apps, and, and like more like reinvention of primitives, I would say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Julian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And everyone who tuned in, thanks so much. See you next time. Cool. Thanks. Bye.